and welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite film where New York City is a character is Taxi Driver. Uh, my name's Darren, and my favorite... Uh... I always get the sca- uh, like <laughs> New York City film New thingy. New York City film thingy, where, where New York is a character. Um, I've, I've narrowed it down to either The Warriors, Ghostbusters, and I've never seen Morbius, so um, I'll, I'll go with Ghostbusters. How do you even know Morbius is set in New York City? Because <laughs> I, I have access to the internet. <laughs> There's lots of things. Okay, and oh, the magic of technology. And my name's Steve. I'll direct you to some other sites later. <laughs> my name's Steve, and uh, my favourite movie in which New York City is a character, seated that perfectly first time. Uh, oh, oh. Now I can't think of what it is. No, I can't. It's Q, the Winged Serpent. Oh, oh, nice one. Thank you. Um, taking, oh, I'm, I'm we would have also accepted as well. <laughs> Immediately stealing my shit. There we go. <laughs> we would have also accepted the taking of Pelham 123 or uh, Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, but that's only if you want to be a pretentious There is about like a me. billion movies that we could have picked in that time, and I threw that at them about 10 minutes before we started recording and just about got murdered for it because uh, <laughs> New York City is, I mean, it is a classic place for shooting films. I mean, it is one of those places where the city becomes the character, no matter what you're shooting there, no matter what decade you're shooting there, it becomes a character. And it's been shot in for over a hundred years, of course. So it's just like there's, you know, it's one of those locations that you can just, you could do just retro after retro of. Um, why are we talking about why this? Why are we talking about this? Uh, well, there's uh, a reason for that, yes, which I'm I've cool. written down this time for a wild change of pace. Um, <laughs> switching things up. Well, yeah. yeah, well, you know, we were, we've, we've been, a, once again, a few months between drinks. We were supposed to record last month on September 9th, and then um, one of our number got COVID, so... Uh, and then <laughs> not telling who no, yeah. <laughs> definitely not telling me that it was Darren again <laughs> yeah. but I will say that um, this theme that we'll get into shortly is uh, three New York City no wave movies featured in the 2010 documentary Blank City where the protagonists spray paint walls and you're probably thinking wow that's a really Doug thing to choose and oddly <laughs> enough it wasn't Doug that actually got this ball rolling it was me by mistake because I was the one that watched Blank City. Uh, and, and when I hear no wave, my ears go sprawling. Oh, and, and let me read the teleprompter here. <laughs> Hang on, Skeets. <laughs> what do you mean by no wave? wave. Well, I'm going to let Doug talk about that because <laughs> Doug knows more about no wave. But basically the short answer for me watching that documentary is the art collective of the 1980s in New York City that were making films on no money with each other as actors and screening them for each other. And this is... You're going right on to, like, Andy Warhol was in part of this, this No Way movement, but the documentary itself is from 2010, and I, I, th- I definitely recommend it to watch because it, it was a subject I knew nothing about. I literally jumped onto this because I'm trying to watch 365 movies in 365 days, just about there. But if you watch a movie at 8 o'clock in the morning, you don't want anything that you have to kind of concentrate too hard on. And documentaries, I found, was something that were great because you could There are no Godfrey Ho movies that really require your whole brain. Exactly. They're more for 2 a.m. in the morning. But, uh, you know, with these, the the documentaries I've been watching, you know, I've I've got, I found a few of them on Tubi. And this one just... The People Streamer. The People Streamer. It's like walking into a a video (laughs) store that's just been, you know, no one's organized the shelves in 20 years. It's it's fantastic. But the, the, the documentary itself, I just thought, well... I know nothing about this this particular movement, and you know, doing this podcast, I've I've been introduced to a new you know subgenres through through Doug and Darren. 
I thought I'd give it a go. And halfway through, I sent a little message off to Doug saying, hey, you're watching this Blank City, I recommend it. And the response that came back was the <laughs> the messenger equivalent of someone just going, oh my God, you've yeah. discovered No Wave. And because Doug is a, new, is a No Wave fan. And I should hasten to add that I'm a No Wave music fan. And that's how I... Um, mostly no, no no wave. So no wave is obviously a play on new wave, which was so basically if you kind of go through the seventies, uh, late seventies counterculture music movements, you have punk rock, and then you have new wave, which is sort of domesticated, all dressed up cousin trying to make it the big time, <laughs> and then you have no wave, which eschews the costuming of both of those and things like melody and listenability of both of those. <laughs> Very and, experimental, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, Sonic Youth is probably the most famous no-wave band. Uh, there there was a record called, uh, I believe it was called No New York, with, um, and some of the bands from No New York feature in these films, like Mars and DNA, um, and I'm blanking on the other two bands that are on it right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, Sonic Youth, who is famously quoted as, or blurbed as, sounding like they tune their guitars to the subways, which is not something I'd <laughs> fully appreciated because we have relatively listenable subways here in Auckland or tra- <laughs> train stops. But when you get to um, an underground in like London or something, it's just like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, that. And that's about what it was. It was, and and as you suggested, there is also this heritage from Andy Warhol. And I think even stuff like Andy Milligan, you can say as well, this kind of, homemade mm-hmm. anti uh anti hollywood um either no stars or making stars on your own terms but refusing to buy into the concepts which are supposed to be at the heart of hollywood filmmaking and and that was what no wave is all about and some of those films have aged better than others there was a film that I had never heard of that was in the documentary called Underground USA. And I was like, I'm going to track this down and we're going to watch it. <laughs> and I tracked it down. I'm like, we're not going to watch it. It's interesting because that looked very interesting on the documentary. And then uh, yeah. you said, literally sent a message that saying, I'm not going to subject you to it, end quote. Because it's all set in one apartment, apparently. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I do thank you for that. Although I, would, I, I may have to track that down to some stage and have a look at it because I think the, the as you say, the no wave films now will have varying degrees of of watchability. Some of them mm. are so much a product of their yeah. time that they're more fascinating as historical documents as opposed to an actual movie. What I loved um, that we uh, didn't talk about and won't be talking about is uh, Born in Flames, which is a film by a woman named Lizzie Borden, and um, that's a really it's one of those that it's like, yep, it's completely dated. It's very strident. It's this kind of sci-fi, uh, you know, just lots of speeches and stuff like that. But it is also like just has a really undeniable and captivating energy to it. And then some of it's just then there will be other films in the movement that just kind of like the music, you know, some of it. It's like, well, these elements of rhythm and things like that um, and like some of the songs that we'll hear later. Um, well, we won't hear later here. If you watch the films <laughs> that we talk about, um, you're like, oh, that's surprisingly catchy. And you can see where like bands like The Rapture or something that became much more popular down the road kind of took bits of that. And it's like, oh, yeah, what if we took this and made it accessible? Um, <laughs> and then there's bands of Noah's Language, which are basically deconstructing music to the point where 
a casual listener would say these people have just picked the instruments up for the first time yesterday. Yeah. Has this been written or are they just attempting to, you know, commune with the spirits because there is some very <laughs> yeah. odd music in these ones and very, very catchy as well. Yeah. Is um, is Liquid Sky a new wave? Uh, no wave. Uh, I've no seen wave. it listed on some, I think, and I think it certainly feels... I mean, it has that kind of arty, punky kind yeah. of. Ultimately, it's just a bunch of people that were making movies yeah. at the same time. It's interesting, also having seen Pink Flamingos the other week, that even that feels like a bit of the lineage. And one of the Pink right. Flamingos actors came to New York and was in a couple No Wave films. Um, and so, and I think it's like you know, it's just kind of this. There was a bit of marketing around it at the time, but it's also kind of been given a post hoc classification and as we progress through these films we can kind of see how they more and more bend you know what might be seen as very simplistic sort of you know measurements of oh this is what the film does and this is how it's completely not hollywood at all um and uh yeah we'll get to that but um we haven't just watched films set in early New York. Have we not? Um, we have not. No, I no. Thought, oh, well, I... <laughs> oh, someone's come unprepared. I probably only watched three movies this morning before he got here. But... Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I work. <laughs> I, I sort of know how Darren sleeps sometimes when he's like, yeah, well, it's only just been 14 movies. Why do you like, assume he sleeps? Well, well I assume he dreams movies and just thinks he's seen I, them, I so. am in the room, <laughs> by the way. This could why, be a loose... why are you taking that as an insult? This could be a loose podcast. <laughs> So I did break out the whiskey for this one just to celebrate getting back in. So I'm going to throw it oh, down yeah. for our first movie. Oh, right. Well, I'm going to take a nice swig of Almanac. Yes. Okay. Yum. Bit of Almanac, bit of uh, Johnny Walker 18 on the table. Our non-sponsor sponsors. Cheers. Oh. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Ooh. That's... So what have you, you been watching then, Darren? Well, um, I let's, let's work our way... Shall I forwards pick to back whoa <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's hit me right the too much of choice a... okay <laughs> yes I'll let him recover from that okay I'll throw out a um, a new movie that's on Netflix that is my favorite movie of 2022 Ooh. and it is called Athena um, ah, it is directed by okay. Romain Gavras who directed a film called The World Is Years that's on Netflix that I never bothered watching but played the film festival a couple of years ago that sounded like kind of a modern Scarface ripoff and I wasn't that excited. Uh, he also directed a couple of videos for MIA, like the one for Born Free and things like that. And so um, Athena is a film set in France in uh, a neighborhood where uh, there's been a killing of... A young person in this um, embattled, embattled um, uh, housing project, and uh, there are two brothers. Well, there are three brothers. One of them has been killed. Excuse me. There's four brothers. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but the second brother is a policeman. The third brother uh, is a youth that is in, entirely disaffected, and um, basically, it's a more or less real time. Uh, where giving the speech in front of the police station, saying, everybody stay calm, turns into the exact opposite of that. It is um, probably maybe 15 shots, maybe 20. And, I mean, maybe more stitched together, but it feels like that. And the and I just, like, if you're on the fence about it, I would say watch the first shot, which begins at the police station, um, continues with a Molotov cocktail entering the police station, along with a car, continues inside the police station where many arm and armaments are gathered by the this youth in revolt 
and then continues outside the police station for two miles in and out of the van driving away from the police station um, while they're driving. So going outside, I mean, in it's just one in one continuous uh, location. I mean, you, there's a couple places where you can see seams, but it's just it's just extraordinary, uh, and it takes place. I say real time. It's more or less over. They get home, then there's the night and the day, and um, and it's just uh, if you can turn it off after that, then I guess it's really not your thing. And go watch Strobe Hule films that are like 15 minutes of lockdown cameras and people like kind of being uh, <laughs> diegetic. But um, I will say that it's uh, co-written by Laj Lee, who did the film Les Misérables, not the musical but the one that was set in another French housing project and who's also worked with um, the artist J.R. on some of his projects set in housing projects. And so he has a lot of uh, credentials and form with working in this community and telling authentic stories about the uh, Muslim community and um, the impoverished community. And and, uh, all of that feels... It feels like a very political film that never stops to make a speech because it's too busy just taking you along this really potent ride. So, yeah, I had heard of this one, actually. You know, you might have heard the, the, the old recognition from both of us when we said that, because I have seen the trailer for that and I've heard a lot of good word of mouth about on the internet. So that has been on the the Netflix mental queue, at least if not on the actual queue for, for some time. But, Definitely, and I do remember you actually tweeting about it. if you if you watch the first shot, we'll tell you whether you want to see it. Yeah, but All the right. fact is, I mean, because there's been a couple of these these you know, well, actually, just one the recently a Korean movie, and I the time blanking on the title, which was shot to all look like one continuous action yeah, sequence yeah. from. Oh, is that Carter? Movie. Carter, that's yeah. Something. How was that? Um, oddly enough, it sounds like it would be right up my alley because it's a it's an action movie that is just one continuous action scene, but it's got my typical Netflix complaint. It's too goddamn long. Yeah. It gets to a point where you go, this is actually the same scene from 40 minutes ago oh. in a different vehicle. Yeah. And by the end of it, it's, it's gotten to the points of ridiculousness oh. where even the movies crank and crank high voltage are going, you want to tone that down just <laughs> right, a little bit. Right, Because you've been killed like 87 times already in this movie. If you look at it as a, as a hyper-violent cartoon, great, yeah. but it needed 15 minutes trimmed off it just to get it. Because we don't. Every movie doesn't have to be two hours, especially yeah. if it's a, a super high one. I think it's it like ninety six minutes or something. Oh, wow. I, I um, think it's. I think it's not. I think it's only ninety six. Something like Thank that. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Um, but <laughs> also, but I totally hear you on the one take thing, and I, and there's been one take movies like there was one called Victoria a while back that I turned off because I'm like, this is just, it's only one. There's no cuts because you want to show off that you have no cuts and this isn't actually a one take movie there are numerous takes inside it it's just a series of very long takes generally but um they're just you know he's thought about um that every moment within that take is communicating something about character or geography or something like that there's no wasted time and if there is stuff that is Maybe it's like, oh, I've been through this before. It's like, yes, but I'm on the journey with this character now and the stakes have changed and that resets the balance in a way. And and even, yeah, and, and so how he moves actors through it and stuff, there's never any of that kind of, yeah, I know this is, you know, it's the best. I mean, like bully, Bullying Point. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I've mm-hmm. talked about it before, I think. I think so, not. It's with Stephen Graham as a... Um, chef who's struggling oh, right oh, before yes. Christmas yeah, and yeah. um and they do the one take thing in there and there's definitely like moments where it's like uh 
that was a bad improv. That could have worked, you know, good on you. But and this this it's like there's no kind of yes, but it's just whoa, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a definite definite watch. Nice. Well, I I have a film very very similar to that. Uh, Pause of Fury: The Legend of Hank. The uh, <laughs> a film I had wow. no interest in whatsoever. It, a, a, I literally just recommended my wife off taking my five year old nephew to see this, so I'm very curious about this. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> this was just because of reviews online, not because of um, the poster. Made me just go really. You 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 yeah. you could devoting fifty percent of your poster it's to a. An, a cartoon cat's ass. It's I think a, it is. a um, an animated remake of Blazing Saddles, <laughs> um, and it does have Mel Brooks in the cast. Um, and I, yeah, I had no interest in it, but I, I just heard a few people mention that it could be, it could be a bit of fun, and it's a lot of fun. And and it manages to to tell the same story of Blazing Saddles. So it you've got a um, someone trying to destroy a town, a mayor, or, or, or um, so the the Harvey Corman equivalent in this case is Ricky Gervais, who's a cat, um, trying to uh, destroy this t- um, this town, and he. Um, the best way he can do that is to hire an ineffectual dog to go and be the town's samurai and a town of cats. So they managed to do the same racism story, but in a way that that kids can get it instantly. And it doesn't have to have any slurs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they went through that script with a going, just in case Mel's like anything in there. <laughs> yeah, Blazing Saddles, but for kids. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Martyrs, but yeah. for kids. <laughs> well, wow. With, yeah. my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite funny. stories about Blazing Saddles is that when Mel uh, Brooks had an executive come to him with a page full of changes, and he went, yes, that's that's a great idea, that's a great idea. Perfect. Very good idea. And then he waited until he walked out, and he looked at his co-writer and went, good meeting, and he threw it in the bin and continued working. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, the ultimate thing for a comedy, and it, it, it's just a, a fun comedy. I laughed a lot. It, I wasn't, and I wasn't expecting to. I was expecting it to be. I was kind of hate watching it. Uh, was you, it? You're expecting, you know, um, the the emoji movie, but with well, I, I would never subject myself to the emoji movie. It's probably <laughs> the fact that Mel Brooks was an actual part of it that made me think it it might be fun. But it it manages to um, have all the the big points that. Blazing Saddles has and managed to do them pretty well. It's just funny. I, I mean, Blazing Saddles is a better film. It's one of my all-time favourite comedies. Is Kung Fu Panda a better film? It's a different film. Right. Because it really is... Because that's what it kind of it looked like Kung Fu Panda to me from a... Well, Blazing Saddles is... Re, I mean, uh, Blazing Samurai, which was the original name of it, that they've gone with... Um, Cause of Fury, wasn't Cause it? Cause of Fury instead. <laughs> But, I mean, it even opens with a, um, a Blazing Samurai song like it does Blazing Saddles. Um, this is not the movie that the poster gave me any indication Except, of. And, and I mean, even why, the title. 
I didn't intend to talk about no. this tonight, but I realised that no one is really interested in it, and it's actually a lot of fun. Because, well, even the title oh, just screamed just Kung Fu Panda. Expectations low, because... but it, I mean, it does have a. Of course, it ha it goes into for the farting sequence in a different way. Um, I'm definitely taking my five-year-old to this. <laughs> not my five-year-old. My, uh, my five-year-old nephew. nephew. Right. <laughs> he, he's Amazing. not owning to that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's fun. Um, cool. And I, it's, I didn't really touch on the story too much, but just know that you've got Michael Cera is the uh, is the Hank character. Uh, Ricky Gervais, take him or leave him. But he's 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 okay enough in this. Um, take him when he's funny, leave him when he's being insufferable well, yeah, on the exactly. internet. Yeah, well, <laughs> which is a lot of the time. Exactly. <laughs> but there's also Samuel L. Jackson. Um, is the um, is the Gene Wilder character. And uh, George Takai uh, okay. and Dig uh, Digimon Honsu, Michelle Yeoh. It's got a good cast. And it's, the thing is, uh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you fun. see those, those those animated films and you see like a, you know, someone's on there and it feels like someone in the death of their career has gone onto one of these cheap films and has been paid just to stay in the voice studio for a day and be one minor character. But if Mel Brooks is on board, then yeah, I'll be on board on that one. And that's the thing, when you, when you get now suddenly, I've got a teenager now, so I don't see as many family films as we used to. I've seen some great family films when my son was five or six or seven years of age. And Are you just standing out of his room going, hey, can we go to Legion of Super Pets? He's like, it's for kids. It's for kids, yeah. yeah. Although we did go see uh, the double feature of Aliens and Mad Max uh, <laughs> 2 uh, recently, which was freaking amazing. I think you talked about that on the last I think I did yeah. on the last podcast. Yeah. And I, you mentioning um, Kung Fu Panda, I actually had to make a case on Twitter recently that Kung Fu Panda is simply a kid's gateway drug to Shaw Brothers movies. Yes. Because it is... In effect, in all intents and purposes, a Shaw Brothers movie on the animated. And all three of them. And with oh, a, a three and a half year old's yeah. Chamber of Shaolin. It is, exactly. <laughs> and all three of them are actually really decent. I don't think there's a bad one in, in them, no. that trilogy. No, fantastic martial arts films but to get. Ultimately, yeah. keep your expectations low. It's just, it's a, a funny a funny film. And it, and it should probably make you laugh at least once or twice. It nice. made me laugh quite a bit. Right. All right, your turn. Okay, over to me. He so looks visibly shocked. Yeah, I, 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 I don't actually know how to dark. follow up on that one. It's just kind of like, do I have to go for an art film here? Oh my god, what's the highest class He's film like, I've So before? marry me, the Owen Wilson Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really good. <laughs> I've got to say, we had our we had my wife's birthday movies recently, and she picked the movies. And for the first year, we had the romantic comedy, and it was my favorite film of the day. Um, and it's oh, the uh, Drew Barrymore, the Drew Barrymore, yeah, I, uh, Justin I watched, Long. That was during uh, my going COVID. the distance, which is not the film I was going to talk about, but it's a really funny, mm. legitimately funny, and legitimately warm film. Yeah, and it's got the best chemistry between the actors and actresses because mm -hmm. they dated twice before right, they yeah. even you know for two years uh, before they were a couple. So suddenly you put them on screen, and it's just they're having a really good time. But that's not the movie I'm going to talk about. It is a great movie. Um, I actually am going to talk about um, an action flick I came across on, once again, on Tubi, uh, based on a recommendation from Twitter, from my Twitter followers. Uh, and it stars, of all people, Gary Daniels, who is, you know, he's a, he's a martial artist and occasional actor. I'm an actor. That's a big quote, right? Because Gary is, is a little... Well, he's monotonic. He's he's very British. And he's very monotonic. He can he looks good in a '90s ponytail, and he can kick you in the face from you know, like six feet away. 
but he's not the best actor in the world. But this movie actually is the first one I've seen that solves the Gary Daniels isn't a good actor problem. The movie's called Recoil, uh, from 1998, directed by Art Camacho. Uh, and it basically solves it by taking the first 20 minutes of the film, the getting to know your part, where you introduce the plot and the characters, and you work out what the stakes are, uh, and it just throws out the window and goes, can we have a car chase for that first 20 minutes? <laughs> and can we throw hand grenades out the car window while we're doing it? Literally. And can we have a motorcycle in the car chase and a car that does a full barrel roll and smashes through a set of uh, Is this street PM lights. Entertainment? It is. I believe it is probably a PM Entertainment one. It's, it's definitely one of the best ones. It sounds like from the date and from that, it sounds like that kind of, you know, it's, like the sort of era that drives from that late era of like, we're not going to get much longer to do practical effects, so let's do all of them. They throw everything. The, the opening chase scene feels like they every bit of film that they shot and they took into the edit suite and went, what do we cut out? And the editor went, nope. <laughs> We're keeping everyone. Because at one stage they drive, in chasing this, this guy on a motorcycle, into a warehouse. And they drive from one end of the warehouse to the other. And I think they went from L.A., to Nevada because it just keeps going. This It takes them, I think, swear to God, five minutes to drive from one end of the warehouse to the other. And then they turn around and they go back the other way. Only this time throwing grenades off the back of the motorcycle. And this guy's got a hell of a lot of grenades on him for a motorcycle rider. I don't know where he was storing them. It would have been uncomfortable. Everything gets blown up. And this, the, as I say, the barrel roll where a car hits another car, the classic rollover that you see, this thing goes into orbit, does a barrel, hits a set of streetlights, which explode when he hits them. And I legitimately, in my living room by myself, stood up and went, holy fucking shit, this is the best movie ever. And then the second act comes along and it goes, okay, they've forgotten to do anything in the second movie. Basically, the second half of the movie is, okay, you accidentally killed a mob boss's son. They're going to get revenge by killing your wife, and you, Gary Daniels, are going to be very sad about it for the next 25 minutes. And then suddenly they get to the last part of the movie and they went, shit, we've got to have any action in it. And all the action starts again. So it front loads a massive action sequence, a massive shootout in the middle at the end. And the middle bit just doesn't really do much. It's just there to pad those out. But that same being said, one of the best mid-budget action movies I've seen in a long time. And you will be seeing it because I'm bringing that back to open uh, B-Fest next year. Because, Uh holy crap. And and I'm not going to go deep into the plot on it because they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) They really didn't. They they just went, okay, you've you've got a wife that shoots machines where you're very happy. And, you you know, here's all your partners. And guess which one of those is going to get killed? Mm, The minority. Uh, And let's start bumping some of those off to get you angry. And then we'll give you a gun and a car and a bunch of guys to shoot. And we've got a movie. And they got that thing in the can, and it's great. I'd never heard of it. Literally never heard of it yeah, until this guy awesome. said literally just that. He said, you know, the 20 minutes at the start is just a car chase. And I went, well, I'm in for this. I think the... Um it's interesting. I think second acts are usually where these films fall over. Yeah. Um, and, and it's because it, I just was thinking about 36 Chamber of Shaolin, which has the best second act of all time because that's the whole training montage. Yeah. But I just watched um, The Strange Races of Mrs. Warda wow. last night, which is it's quite a good film, but it definitely mm. slackens in the second half. It's kind of like that, you know, it starts out and it's like, we're going to have a bunch of nuts stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, now we got to have some exposition and <laughs> some self-focused thing. And every once in a while, there's a bit that's really interesting. And then, but it's just kind of like, who's the killer? I don't know. It's just like, w- watch me bombard you with red herrings. And it's, yeah. and, and, and I was kind of like, and then it gets to the last half hour. It's like, 
All is forgiven. Yeah, the brakes came off. I, the I, same with I, me I with the one-armed film. executioner, which I watched uh, last night oh, right. for the second time, and I, I remembered that it had a really great goofy. You know, it's shot in the Philippines by Surio Santiago, I think. Or, um, and it's oh, the, the opening sequence is is great from a, a terrible standpoint. There's terrible acting, and there's some, you know, guys getting their arms cut off. And then for thirty minutes in the movie, middle of the movie, it's once again, it's I am sad for my wife. I am drunk because I am sad for my wife. I am training so I can avenge my wife. I am still training to avenge my wife. And it's like, please get out there and shoot somebody. And then they bring in an insane helicopter pilot that flies across a lake three feet from the back of a speeding speedboat and you go I like this movie again so yeah that once again that middle section on some of these ones they just they're just there to, to tie those two bits in there and sometimes you just need to switch that down a little bit which is why we don't need three hour long action movies sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um, Terrifier 2 is out now and it's 138 Oof. minutes two and a half and hour like, slasher uh, film yeah like Oof. why I don't know. Yeah, I've never seen the first one. I don't intend seeing the second one unless they do a director's uncut of it. <laughs> okay. Well, sticking on the um, keeping film shorter and better uh, wavelength, I'll talk about the film that's right in front of me. I don't know if you guys have seen this one. <laughs> I saw it for the first time la- last night. Uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man. Never um, heard. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, Jack Arnold. Uh, Eighty minutes, and I don't know. It just hadn't. Um, it had never like transcended that must-see kind of barrier until mm. recently when Criterion released it. And I'm like, oh, this sounds a thing. And um, and uh, Tim Lucas uh, did the commentary for this disc, who's a person that I follow on Facebook and uh, is an amazing film historian and does lots of commentary. And sadly, um, as an aside, his wife just passed away today at the at a far too young age. Just um, So that was really sad, just listening to his commentary last night about how the first film he ever saw growing up was when his grandma took him to the cinema and um, the incredible shrinking man was playing and he you know walked in in the middle of this giant black and white <laughs> sequence and was somehow not traumatized um, I don't know if um, there's a couple things that that really like tick my boxes in it one of it is there's no real antagonist a lot of these films mm-hmm. set up and anta- there's no doctor that's like secretly trying to make things worse. The the wife's trying to be as helpful as possible. She never like throws her toys out of the cot and abandons him intentionally or anything. Um, so there's that. Um, Richard Matheson is such a great writer, and um, and even though kind of the voice that it gets into sort of near the end where it gets very cosmic mm-hmm. is a bit of a stretch for that characters he's portrayed it still works with the journey of it but also i just really love um films that are quite procedural i mean it's a very strange comparison but we watched a film here ages ago called alone in the wilderness that was about this guy who's like well i uh, do you remember it i, Ooh, I think it's been a been a while it's basically just this this yeah. kind of documentary about this guy's well i turned up oh, here and i like, right. got out yes. this rock and i chipped it into an axe head and i made an oh. axe and then i built a cabin and stuff you know it was, and it's just this kind of like it was a long time watching, ago yeah, no, yeah it this, was not recent um it, it, is, it has ringed some bells but they're very yeah. faint bells yeah <laughs> but I, I but i really love that and and when the back half of this film becomes this insanely uh, well executed. A, it's a miracle of practical effects, mm-hmm. right? And listening to the commentary also, like, even reveals to a degree beyond which is obvious 
on screen as you see him shrink and everybody else stay the same size. But just um, some of the superimposition of, for instance, um, one of the major set pieces is when the uh, family cat morphs without changing size from lovable tabby to apex predator in the household when mom's not <laughs> yeah. around and um and they're talk they were talk tim was talking on the um track about how jack arnold would like get all the footage he could of the cat and then sit there with a metronome and like count the exact number of beats and work out where things happened and then wow. he'd have to get the actor to like you know, hit certain beats at certain points and then superimpose that into the shot so that after he filmed it. And, and even though the lead performance by, uh, can you remind me, Grant Williams, um, at first I didn't love it. He's kind of a bit one note, but I think that actually, that note kind of works as it goes on in part because it is a very, I think it's a film that the physical performance actually he does so well it weirdly reminded me of Logan Marshall Green and Upgrade, which I happened to also watch that week, where um, his actual dram- dram- dramatics are kind of, they're fine, they're what they are, but it's the physicality of this insane idea and upgrade that he's pulling off that takes the film just to this complete next level. And it's the same thing in The Incredible Shrinking Man of making this, I'm, you know, lifting a nail or something or I'm I'm marooned on a mat and holding onto a pencil for dear life and just like you know you you never don't buy it and that's yeah. um yeah. so yeah um I, and it does all that in 80 minutes and it does and it con- consistently um flat-footed me in what beats were coming next you know because mm. and and it's really smart in its pacing I was rarely you know I've seen a lot of 50s sci-fi as have we all and you know it does i tend to find a lot of it quite plotting and dated even um jack arnold did tarantula which gives him form with the um this spider that's the final uh the final boss yeah and and also just jack arnold's there's such a sense of playfulness as too like there's um a scene where um after he's been defeated by the spider and there's this constant um, thread about diminishing masculinity and he goes out and um, he weapons up with a, a nail and um, mm-hmm. something and he says with these tools I felt like a man again and he's holding this thing making a crotch right? and there's a shadow that projects <laughs> you know it's just like we get where you're going there yeah. and well done you know and, um, oh, it's a, yeah it's a stunning I film. highly it recommend stunning it, film. Yeah. Oh, it is. And I, I remember actually seeing and I didn't remember it until you were talking about it. I, I remember seeing this on TV, um, on, um, just on in the afternoon during school holidays or yeah. something. And it's, and I, I don't think I watched all of it. I saw the last, so that the last bit where he yeah, yeah. he's in the basement, and it's, and I just, yeah, it. Um, it's kind of mesmerizing and hypnotizing. I mean, yeah. just the way he's battling and then then he, he can't. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, Man Alone films, can, you know, it, when they get right, you know, something like All Is Lost is another yeah. example or something. And in fact, they were, they were going to get, um, I think it was Dan O'Hurley. They were trying to get, and he had just been in um, 
Robinson Crusoe, which was a man alone, and apparently, mm. and Lucas reads his correspondence for, or something from his autobiography or something. I forget where he's talking about how he's like, I don't want to be the guy who did all the man alone films. And they kept bugging me to do this one. I refused, and I went back to Ireland, and I, you know, went back to some relative that nobody knows, and I got there, and they're like, Oh yeah, this this Zugman guy has been calling for you. Wants you to do it. <laughs> uh, it's like no thing, Zug Smith. Excuse me, and. Uh, yeah, so that was a um, you know every once in a while you feel like oh I've seen all the all the classics all the classics yeah. instead of have another one just kind of slap you and be like no there's a few left yeah it's, oh, it's one of the earliest awesome. classics I think I saw when I was a, a sci-fi geek when I was about thirteen once again I saw it on yeah. TV and I've seen it on TV and I've seen it on the big screen and the more I see it the more it's, it's just a frigging masterpiece every Absolutely. review I ever read of it uses the word cerebral and it is yeah. it's a really intelligent script because a lot of the fifties yeah. sci-fi movies just went. Radiation, hand wave, and that was it. It yeah, was yeah. you know it, why why exactly has your head turned into a grasshopper's radiation? Right, cool. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. great. It does everything around here, but but this one, I mean, it doesn't really even give it gives a, a kind of a radiation explanation, but it, it keeps well, it, the mystery as to it's what is dual. Actually, doing. actually, they get a bit into it because it's the idea is not just that he's been exposed to radiation, but, but then also the insecticide he's exposed yeah, so, to months yeah. later has activated something that yeah. reverses. The growth process, and they have some other stuff where they're doing like assays on him to like determine the presence of elements. Yeah. Ultimately, and stuff. it's all phlebotinum. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but, it, but it feels more sciencey than calling yeah. it unobtainium and moving exactly. on. Exactly, you know? just just hand waving. It's yeah. just we will never know exactly what happened. But there, it's yeah, it's one of those films all that right. you I could watch any time because well, I'm glad again, you finally yeah. finally saw it. And on on my. My, yes, thanks my. to Darren's uh, Arrow <laughs> right. Blu-ray. It wasn't we, the Criterion one, but it was a lot, Thank you, Arrow. A lot of trading this uh, before we started going on here. So um, Yeah, if you want to sponsor us, Arrow. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, because what we need is more Blu-rays to watch right now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, this is why I, I really enjoy this, this section of the podcast, is because we, uh, when we're doing the main bit... We're not always exposed to films that we can be positive about, mm. <laughs> and and this is just a chance. Spoiler alert! <laughs> I don't think Darren liked one of these movies. No <laughs> hints. <laughs> <laughs> but but this gives us a chance just to to actually we're only talking about films that individually we've really enjoyed, mm. and I I think that's great. It's just a way of celebrating film. I I. I did see my worst movie of the year this year, so I could potentially talk about that just to balance it up. But it is your turn. I'll I'll, I'll debate on that the next few minutes. Well, uh, the next one is it's not really it's not really the sort of film that would be my sort of thing, and it's a it's using their character to go through the history of music essentially from the sort of uh, it's the 50s through to the the 70s 80s and the uh, and it's directed by Alison Anders and it's Grace of My Heart and it's, oh right yeah I it just I've been hearing more and more about it over the past couple of years and I thought fuck it it's time to watch <laughs> a good reason is anything. yeah how <laughs> oh, well the fuck it principle works uh, in lots of different ways but. Um, Ileana it, Douglas or no? Yes, Ileana Douglas is the lead, and and that is criminal that this is one of her very few really lead roles, and she is just spectacular. It's um, it's an amazing film. Um, it's 
it really does give you a journey by using her as the lead character. It gives you a journey through... You go right up until sort of um, uh, Beach Boys. Uh, you've got Matt Dillon as a, a depressive um, Beach Boy, practically, wow. without saying it. <laughs> so basically Brian Wilson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's essentially Brian Wilson. You've got Matt Dillon, you've got Eric Stoltz, Bruce Davison, Patsy Kensett... Uh, there's also a John Turturro who is fantastic. He's oh, the right. uh, he's the head of the label. That um, uh, there's Richard Schiff is in there and a um, and uh, Chris Isaac and Bridget Fonda has a a neat almost cameo like, but it's um, has a sort of deeper. Her scene is quite a deep one, even though it is just one scene, but it's. It's great. The songs are brilliant, and I, I believe um, there's one of the um, one of the major songs is an Elvis Costello. I think he might have written a few of them, right. but um, I highly recommend it. I, I have very warm, tender feelings towards this film, and again, I've, I'm trying not to say too much about it other than see it. I'd love to. I actually. Um feel a bit ashamed because the the night that got me into filmmaking was um a friend showing me a double feature of two films hal hartley's trust and allison anders gas food lodging oh, and wow. um and after trust i immediately sought out all the hal hartley stuff but um even though i really really liked gas food lodging i haven't i've never followed up with allison anders and she's had a pretty i don't want to say checkered career but just uh, sporadic yeah, career, well, that which is fair. you know often the case with many female directors of that era, sadly. And um, but yeah, I mean, they had, and a lot of her films sound intriguing, like Border Radio, which um, seems like almost like the West Coast uh, no wave kind of movie <laughs> made for no money with musicians, and um, and then Things Behind the Sun, which is a much more recent um, autobiographical uh, film about the long term effects of rape. So it's like a really like kind of broad wow. swath of. Um, Material and as you suggest, Ileana Douglas is amazing. We rewatched uh, Cape Fear recently, and oh, uh, yeah. just another reminder of uh, how talented she is. Amongst mm. you know, there's a couple other good actors in there too. I was saying, Cape Fear, the remake, is something I haven't seen since it came out in the cinemas. It's and I think so it is definitely. Good. Now you mention yeah. it, that is going to have to go on my rewatch list to add yet another film I have watched that's going to take away from the top movies that I should be watching, but. Yeah, I think I've I'd really been. I mean, I've been Sorry. really enjoying rewatching recently. Actually, I am. Um, uh, I've been. I j- tend to avoid talking about rewatches on here because I like. Hmm. I get inspired about the new ones, but just in this last week, we re- rewatched Upgrade and also Green Room and also Heavenly Creatures, which I had kind of been like, Oh, Peter Jackson, you know, he makes these movies with eighteen ends, and you know, but Heavenly Creatures is pretty good, but was it really that good? And I think it's the best New Zealand movie ever made. Nice. And I haven't oh, rewatched wow. it. It's. Anyway, but I'm stealing it. You're, no, no, uh, no, no. That, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's Unless all. we want to keep oh, talking about elite creatures. I'm assuming that I'm <laughs> finished. And Are you finished? <laughs> I'm finished. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm finished. Well, <laughs> right. so, oh. Put down the bowling pin. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I'll just very briefly say the, the worst movie I've seen this year, unfortunately, was the Netflix uh, Pierce Brosnan movie, The Misfits. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Where I got up with about 25 minutes to go to make a cup of coffee and just never bothered to go back to the television. <laughs> yeah. um, he it, actually just was, left his house and he just walked uh, away. It was, it was movie night. And I won't was say which Rennie one Harlan of us picked it. Was it somebody like that? Rennie Harlan is oh, yeah, yeah. back. And it's it's the most hollow piece of shit I've ever so seen. So Rennie like Harlan is it's back beautiful. and he's they, worse. They've, they've found the best places in the Middle East to shoot. And obviously there's a hell of a lot of money going, hey, shoot here. Come up yeah. there. There's... Billion dollar views and a five cent script, and it's just a void. It's got the half star rating on Letterbox, and I've only ever given that in the last two years to Jurassic Shark. So you're in right. fine company there, <laughs> But fortunately, uh, four days before that, I watched a movie which I really did like, and uh, by a gentleman named, um, I hope I pronounce this properly, Werner Herzog. Uh, heard of him. Yeah, heard of him. <laughs> That's the one. Um, it was once again a documentary, Into the Inferno, which yes. is on Netflix, which is his documentary on volcanoes and being Werner Herzog at the same time. Because <laughs> to be fair, every film he makes is kind of a documentary on being. I'm Werner learning Herzog. that. I've, I've, <laughs> since we started this podcast, I think I've watched maybe three Werner Herzog films, which is more than I'd watched in my life before that. Because Doug talks about Werner Herzog a lot, <laughs> and you sometimes you go, "Well, let's let's see what the hype is about." And this is phenomenal. It was. It's once again, it's a beautiful film, but it's beautiful yeah. and terrifying at the same time because you are getting these amazing shots of active volcanoes, some of the most active volcanoes in the world. At the same time, Werner Herzog was talking about spirituality and native tribes and whatever else comes to mind. And sometimes you're thinking, did you forget this is a volcano? <laughs> and yet somehow it's still fascinating yeah. because oh. he's, he does have that kind of voice, which it's, once again, this was a, not, I think, a nine o'clock in the morning watch. Yeah. It was a very odd triple feature that day. Um, Werner Herzog for breakfast, uh, there was a uh, peninsula for lunch and uh, the story of O for some softcore sleaze at Peninsula night, as, in, as the in the Korean Busan. Bus- train to Busan follow-up. Not right. as good as, not bad, but once again, a little over line. And then now. the story of O, which was just basically classy French sleaze. By Udo, used, Udo Kier? No, you, yes, Udo Kier. Yeah, used, used to like, used, used, Jaken, Jokin? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry? Just, just Jokin, just Jokin. Is it that the name? Person, the director who did um, Gwendolyn. Oh, I don't actually know. Oh, okay. Sorry. Ignore everything I just said. Someone's screaming at me. Right I, I, now he's just actual. speaking in tongues <laughs> here. I'm sorry, the misfit stuff. Priest. Yes, but Into the Inferno. I never watch softcore. I don't know what you're talking about. I was someone that did teleprompter Remind me the first film you saw at my house. Um, and the first scene of the first film you saw. It in, uh, are we talking about Zombie Lake? We are talking about Zombie Lake. <laughs> I, you don't bring up people's past traumas, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> At least not without a trigger Let, warning. Let's move back then. We'll move back from the time like, yeah, so Into the Inferno, as I say, it's on Netflix. It is, as I say, it's Werner Herzog at his most Wernery, I think, for the recently. Although it probably there's probably some others you, you can name which will be even more Werner than that. But yeah. for something that's, you know, been shot for, for Netflix is just, it blows my mind that they they gave they kind of went okay who can we get to do this documentary on on volcanoes and someone went Werner Herzog's available and here's yeah. all your Netflix money shoot us a beautiful film and then they must have got it back and just gone what is he talking about <laughs> we've already paid for it pop it on it's a fascinating we'll dive. give it a sciency graphic on the thing and say into the inferno into and people the inferno. be like it's like a National Geographic thing <laughs> exactly and then halfway through you're just like 
where are we now? We're in space, apparently. Yeah. And, now we're, and now we're talking <laughs> but that's, internally. But that's where, you know, you... Yeah, I mean, that and that sequence is incredible, where you go to that museum of meteorites and stuff like that. Yeah, and you, you, that whole, a whole yeah. section where he just suddenly starts talking meteorites, and it's just like, the inferno. But wow. you can kind of... It does link together beautifully, but just in a, in a way where you, you're taken on a on an interesting journey for about an hour and a half. And then afterwards, you kind of go, I've got to listen to another hour of that. Just yeah. that voice. I mean, him and someone we're talking oh. about later on, Jim Jarmusch, have got, they should be doing ASMR videos. Just, <laughs> just, just reading old, you know, fairy tales. You know, he's done an audio book of Go the Fuck to Sleep. Has <laughs> he? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And also it did uh, make me, because of course there's the documentary of... Um, of the two French volcanologists coming out. Oh, um, yes. yes. Well, there's two of, them. two of them. There's Fire of Love, Fire which of is by um, Saradosa, and then there's Herzog's, oh, which is oh, called... Right. Um, well, that one. <laughs> no, no, it's a, dof- it's a different one oh. that, is, that he's <laughs> done. It's exclusively on the crafts. <laughs> it's not so much... It's basically an expansion of the... Um, the uh, footage of the crafts and like talking about them as filmmakers and showing oh, off their spectacle. Right. It's not the really, fire within. That's the one. Yeah. Sounds so yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah. He. I. I. I mean, it's very strange that he's making a documentary on them when this fire of love, which is one of the big docos of the year, just mm. came out here a month ago. And, and my wife's like, "Why? Are, why is Herzog making it?" Film. And I'm like, "Well." Two, no, three reasons. The first is Werner Herzog, and I think that precludes me from answering any further <laughs> questions. Werner will do what Werner yeah. wants to do, and, and Doug will watch it. And I'll yeah. probably watch it too, because if he's... I mean, you know, I, I, I thought I would have got my Philip Volcano porn shots on that one, but no, there's I could I could definitely watch more of that. I think our, I think our next step might have to be three Werner Herzog films that have been specifically designed to break Skeet's brain. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think uh, I would be interested to see that. Although I think I might want to call in sick. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, for my third slot, I'm gonna give two quick name checks rather than give one film because I'm just being naughty like that. Um, it, and the first one is uh, because the Terrify Film Festival is coming up, and because we've talked about doing this film in a longer potential discussion, I don't want to re- remove that possibility. Mm-hmm. But because it's um, uh, it's New York Ninja. And uh, mm-hmm. so the Terrify Film Festival, unlike some other film festivals that canceled in 2021 in Auckland, <clears throat> uh, thought that it would be considerate to Aucklanders to actually do a makeup session for the uh-huh. films that they missed. And so they did a stand at the um, Capitol a couple months ago. And, um, and New York Ninja is a film that I've been very much looking forward to. And the story behind it is simply that it was an uncompleted film that was discovered by some archivists at Vinegar Syndrome who completed it. And if we ever talk about it more, we'll go lots more into the detail of it. Suffice but boy, it, does it live up to the hype. And yeah. I have not seen it because wow. I wanted to see it on the big screen, didn't get a chance to, and now I am holding back desperately because I want to watch this with a group of people and quite yes. a lot of beer. Yeah. And that's the yeah. that's the very best way to do it. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I won't go far beyond past that other than say Terrify is coming up in early November and this year's uh, schedule looks like a corker. There's um, Something in the Dirt, which is the new film by Moorhead Benson, who did um, The Endless and Synchronic in Summer. Uh, there's Barbarian, which has already been quite hyped. A lot um, of hype, and I'm trying desperately to blug my ears because yeah, I hear it's one you go into blind. So you have it. to go on blind. Yeah. There's the indie sci-fi Vesper, which looks like an amazing um, construct by this Lithuanian director who's actually done a couple other films, one of which I'd seen before, but I hadn't clocked, but is very 
uh, sort of interesting. They're, they're all kind of quite interesting conceits and go into emotional places. And so if she can pull this off, it'll be terrific. Um, there's bodies, 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 which is the A24 um, kind of scream for Gen Z or something like that. To go and juicing the fall. Oh gosh! Oh, yeah. oh that, now that's that looked to me like it should be on IMAX, like they did with uh, the the one about the the dude that. Uh, oh, the the walk, the yeah, walk. yeah, yeah. That's that because apparently that when they did that in IMAX, that just made people just about throw up and yeah. run out the theater. So it should be on IMAX. It should be on IMAX. Yeah. So people well, will throw up. I, 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 what do you want? I think you want should, people to vomit. I think you movies should be an interactive experience. Are you volunteering? To, if you're volunteering to quit the cinema, we'll program. I am scared <laughs> shitless of heights, but yeah. I would Ditto. I would love to see that because I think for me that would be one of the most legit horror movies ever. Because I don't yeah, like yeah. walking out on ledges two stories up sometimes and if you've got something that is that high and, and if they make it look realistic um oh fuck i will so, be scared out of my so face. i <laughs> um have cut the trailer which one day will go public and uh it looks realistic to me um a couple other under the radar films project wolf hunting which is a korean action film i'm wondering is, if i could even stomach that <laughs> well I, um james who runs terrify said it's the most violent film i've ever seen i'm like Ooh. You tried to program the sadness. Now. <laughs> Don't know. Um, a documentary called A Life on the Farm, which looks just to be mm-hmm. beautiful and, and nuts. Um, and one that's been getting a lot of hype is uh, The Novice, which is a debut film about a woman. Uh, it looks kind of like almost a female whiplash, except instead of drumming, it's rowing. Is right. probably where it seems to be going. And... Uh, one that I complete. Oh, everything must burn, which basically looks like what if a telenova, but um, the eight-year-old girl was Carrie, and <laughs> um, wow. and has the ability to set people on fire remotely and do other telekinetic Ooh. damage. Uh, it looks genius, and it gave me some great images to work with. So great. Nice. Anyway, so um, the other f- film, and the only reason I'm mentioning this one is I do want to pay tribute to. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard because there aren't that many of the generation of European greats like Herzog and um, Godard left you know and, and but he was you know a, a pretty mighty oak love him or hate him or you almost had to do both I find like um, you know I, there's very few Godard films I like unconditionally um, there's none that I completely discard Um even though sometimes they're actively painful to watch. Um, but he's always just thinking in film, and I find that so interesting. But um, sometimes it is like literally two people talking in a room or a 60-minute voiceover over a still, and I'm like, this is pretty niche. And he has he has a reputation of like, oh, he did the 60s films, and then everything else is completely obscure. And uh, so when he passed away, I dug up a film called um, Every Man for Himself and, and God Against All, and I is filmed from 1980 after he'd done a lot of these incredibly political esoteric films, and it was described as his second first film, and it's got um, Isabel Huppert in it amongst others. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised at how, by Godard standards, straightforward it was. It's about a character who's a filmmaker who's living at this hotel, and you know, and and is very clearly a Godard surrogate um and is also a terrible father and um and so there's there but you know when i say it's about that it's like those are the characters Mm -hmm. it's about whatever he's interested in any 
given, given moment. And um, and I, it's not a film I do a hard sell on. Um, certainly, if I'm like, if you're like, I've never seen a good art film. It's like, go watch Alphaville, go watch Pierrot Le Fou, go watch Contempt. You know, those mm-hmm. are more crowd pleasing films. But if you're like, oh, I've seen a couple of those, but everything after 1970 is this scary no man's land. It's like, try every man for himself. It's actually like there are, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot more nuance and phases to his career than people give him credit for. Oh, very cool. Mm. Well, it's, um, last night I was, um, very late doing my homework, so <laughs> I, uh, I saw, uh, one of the films that we are imminently about to talk about, and then I thought, right, I've got to find a, I've got to find a horror film that's quite short so I can go to bed soon. Um, so, and that's how I chose this film, and it blew me away. This film is a TV movie from 1973. It stars, before I give you the title, Chuck Connors, Buddy Epson, Tammy Grimes, William Shatner, Roy Thins, or Thinnis, I've never known how to say his name, Paul Winfield, amongst others. Oh, and uh, Russell Johnson, who plays the professor from Gilligan's Island. And it is freaking awesome. It is called... The Horror at 37,000 Feet. I have seen the poster and put that up multiple times. I think I is know that I, the poster, That sir. is indeed the poster. Is this the one... I haven't seen that poster, but is this the one that the Twilight Zone episode with um, of the movie that... Was, no. Okay, no, it's not related to that at Not all. in any way. No, no. Okay. This is about... Uh, this is a, about a, um, a guy who has... Um, bought the ruins of an abbey and is transporting it. Um, So he's American and his English wife, they are transporting this on a plane. So some stones, essentially. So stones on a plane. Stones on a plane. (laughs) Very much. I want these stones off of this plane. I know that it's TV. <laughs> I want these stones off this marble park. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've lost Aaron. Well, actually, he's amused himself to death there. <laughs> okay. And so essentially, it's the, um, the druidic stones. There's um, Tammy Grimes' character has uh, tried to fight them in the courts and says, no, you shouldn't take them. And then once they're up, um, then you've... uh, So they're on the plane, and for about 30 minutes, you get a... uh, You get an airport movie. um, You get... With all the typical... um, Everyone's got their own story. Everyone's dealing with their own thing. And they're all... um, And then all of a sudden... um, this reminds me of Disaster on the Coastliner, actually, which we watched yeah, last yeah. year. I think that, I mean, this is, in it this and, is superior. Yeah, um, oh. And uh, this is just because it's scary. It's um, there. Um, there's some sort of some. Uh, oh, this uh, the how does it start? Uh, the horror starts when a. Um, an air hostess gets into um, into a lift and suddenly the lift starts to um, to frost over. 
and freeze. Is there a lift and, on the and, plane? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. it's, um, and so <laughs> I was going to know she's in a hotel. They try and pull her up, and she's barely, she's bare frozen. And then someone else goes and checks, and 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 there's. You never really see what the horror is, but right. you you see its effects. There's um, at one point the uh, the plane um, gets mold in certain parts of its sections, and it starts to look like an abbey. It has it's sort of. And this just to... sounds like being in a New Zealand rental. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we allow Americans on these? <laughs> I think it's, I it's, think it's in the treaty somewhere, you know. <laughs> but it is. It, it, it You're known for your Minakitanga. What can I say? It might be one of the best William Shatner performances I've seen wow. post Star Trek. It's, okay. I, it's just really great, and and you've got you've even got um, bits moments of sort of mist like situation where people feel that they have to sacrifice someone else on the plane in order to to get away with it and and it doesn't necessarily let it doesn't necessarily kill off those people so they have to live with their actions and that sort of stuff is awesome as well it's sort of and buddy epson plays a bastard (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, which I've never really seen before. I mean, I don't, I don't recall who he is. Oh, um, uh, Jed Clampett. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's um, who's also Barnaby something or other. A poli- he did a police. Barnaby show. Jones. Yeah. Oh right. Did a police show for. That um, was a big deal in America. Six, yeah, it was about seven or eight years of that. Yeah. But yeah, it is tremendous. It is. I was. It's. Might be one of the best horrors I, of, of the 14 I have seen so far. <laughs> In October. <laughs> Since which we're October the first. Currently on a, October 11. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's on the usual run to, you know, the end of the year. Just yeah. get in as many films as possible. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it, it is... I, yeah, it's great. Watch it. Nice. If you can find it, watch it. All right. And All right. time for your and final recommendation. Final recommendation. My recommendation is, well, it's a bit of a blank recommendation for a start because as I've been getting towards the end of the year, and I've only got, as I say, about 10 or 12 movies to my goal of 365 movies. I've and started, you're stopping to watch movies for the rest of the uh, year, right? Well, I, last time I did this, I had 420 movies in the year, although I do have a few things to do there at the end of this year. So it might be, maybe we'll aim for 400 maybe. But... As I get near the end of the year, I've kind of it feels like I'm at the movie marathon. It's post breakfast. I'm in that kind of slow slide down. Right. So I've been rewatching some things, but I thought I'd use my subscription to one of the few things I still pay for because I've got to give a shout out to some of the stuff that Shudder is putting out because mm-hmm. Shudder's originals and exclusives have been punching super above their weight for you know considering that they're not the biggest streaming service out there they don't have the hugest budgets i mean netflix you can be you know 250 million dollars to make a chunk of shit yeah. you know gosh we haven't even talked about glorious rebecca mckendry well funnily enough oh. <laughs> As I, rebecca mckendry Re- does two of my uh, does uh, <laughs> one of my favorite podcasts so nice I well, well shout to... out to uh, rebecca mckendry because that is actually the film i had Oh my little Cheers. screen there! Cheers, well done. See, we, I haven't we seen Glorious, but I'll um, so, my empty glass anyway. But definitely, Glorious is the one I was going to talk about. Nice. But the other two I'm going to mention briefly before I do that. 
Uh, other Shutter films? Other Shutter films. Uh, well, Have Shutter, you seen Deadstream? Oh, I haven't seen Deadstream, no. I've been hearing good things about it. So but, have I. Uh, That's why I ask. I have um, just recently watched uh, Tragedy Girls, which is not a... Uh, oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah, that was fantastic film. film. Quite a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's well, been, it's been sort of but, yeah. sitting on my on my to-do list for quite some mm-hmm. time. And, and every time that I went through my list with Darren, he's like, you've got to watch Tragedy Girls. And I watched it. Yeah. And he wasn't wrong. Great film. And then uh, just recently, uh, Salomon. Uh, Saloon. Saloon, sorry. Yeah, yes. that's an interesting film, yeah, isn't very, it? Yeah, very, very interesting one because it's a, I mean, it's a an African horror that's also a Tarantino film. That's it's basically a From Dusk Till Dawn. It is, in oh, effect. Structure. It pretty much I, is. Please you know? don't, don't tell me too no, much it's, more. It's, I've never heard of this one. It take, once again, it's like what I was saying before about a previous movie. It takes you on a journey and you don't really see the twists yeah. and turns coming. You know, it's on shutter. You're thinking, well, it's a horror, but those mm-hmm. horror elements aren't thrown at you from scene one. They yeah. develop, and they develop in a really intriguing way. It's from Senegal. Man. It's yeah. a very good film. But you know, Glorious, yeah, that was just, that was in one of our Saturday cinemas. We put that on with a couple other things, and yeah, either that or she blew the room away. Absolutely. Really did. If you were wearing a hat, I'd take it off to you, Rebecca McKendry. <laughs> it's marvelous. It was actually quite a, quite she a the long director run. Or the director? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was part of a quite a long run, but that was our feature film for the night, because we did uh, King Dinosaur. Uh, the Sword and the Claw, quite called cool, The Astrologer, and then we hit Glorious, and Glorious was definitely a a high water moment. Mm-hmm. And then everyone went home and I watched The Dark, Better and that was King a mistake. Better than Dinosaur? Was shit. Um, <laughs> it's good if you like stock footage and and and, and nothing lizards. else. I am fond of and stock footage, but you know, it's a lot much. of stock footage. Yeah. I mean, when you start the movie with twenty minutes of stock in footage, in fact, I yeah. love stock footage. Where can I go to watch solely stock footage? We got uh, that B-roll. Yeah, King, King Dinosaur. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, glorious if you haven't seen it is. I mean, it's a it's a one room in effect a one room horror, and it's funny as fuck at the same time because it is a, a great horror comedy I mean the word Lovecraftian you have to use because yes. it is basically taking the Lovecraftian mythos and then going can we set the Lovecraftian mythos in a bathroom stall in a middle America and the answer was yes and the answer was also <laughs> well done yes you should do that because it was great I, I once again I came to this completely blind I had it on there everyone said we've got to watch Glorious so I did no research into it whatsoever and then movie unspooled and I'm just like I don't know where exactly we're going with this but I'm enjoying every second of it and then as it started to get into the 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 interstellar madness that is Lovecraftian horror in mm-hmm. middle America it's I just sat back there and just went I'm going to have the best time of my life today and it was <laughs> a phenomenal movie and I'm really looking forward to whatever she does next absolutely sign me up and as I say Shudder is for me it's one of the cheaper streaming services that in New Zealand you can get and with a good VPN uh, you can extend that out to quite a lot of other movies and even for New Zealand just the ones that they have on there are great and it's worth mentioning J.K. Simmons who is so good at voiceover it, yeah. it does an amazing voiceover performance right. in this yeah so much depth to something that shouldn't really have that <laughs> no. much depth yeah. It's um yeah, it's and the um who's the lead? It's he from True Blood, isn't it? Ryan Quanton, isn't it? Oh, I believe that sounds you're right. Probably yeah. right there. He's face scrolling down. Yes. Indeed. I say never having seen a moment of True Blood in my life. <laughs> no, but... neither have I, but you are indeed right, Ryan Quanton. Yeah. yeah. It's just it's it's brilliantly cast. It's just a it's a hoot. 
I yeah. think is a, a good way to describe yeah. it. It's just really, really fun. And it keeps you guessing. It doesn't yeah. do exactly what you think it's going to do. And it doesn't. And it's only got a very small place to do it. No, it's got two interiors and one exterior and six actors in the film. It's probably part of the reason I've avoided it, actually, because I wasn't here that day, but I've just been a bit burned out on a lot of... Um, Post-COVID minimal lockdown. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's so many lockdown films, and I imagine um, that this was this ex- existed as a script before COVID. Right. Was, yeah, it it, uh, it which made it possibly more easier to create. To well, I, think, I mean, there's there's famously a lot of filmmakers. Uh, Alex Garland Men is a good example. Of like, oh, COVID's here. I've got this idea that's like uh, two actors in one location that I can finally do that I've been thinking of doing for 20 years. So there's a lot of people who kind of like got out their notebooks and like, I can do this. I can do right. yeah. that. You know, here's another thing I had sitting around. Um, I mean, not all of them are bad, though. I mean, host, oh, yeah. um, the 2020 host, the uh, the Zoom horror. Oh, I still haven't seen that yet. Is, is, is not one that I'm going to remember for decades to come. But it was, once again, a nice little compact horror yeah based around you know just yeah. the you know feeling very set in the modern day because it's of the 50 minutes it's, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's i mean but it is a film and yeah, it just, and it, it really yeah. it really yeah. drags you in it's, mm. it's sort of wham bam have a cigarette afterwards it's, yeah but, then, <laughs> but then it's only if you look up for like lockdown movies you get things like the lockdown hearings and because you mm. maybe will get lockdown amityville at some stage because right. every friggin' thing's going to amityville the latest amityville movie is called amityville karen and I think they've absolutely <laughs> gone to some sort of place where maybe they need to just pull back. On Have they already done movies. an Amityville in space? They've done Amityville in space. I think they've done an Amityville shark movie now. They've, they're, they're just everything. <laughs> everything you can think of will be there. We'll have Amityville Trump next year, presumably. I don't know. It's just whoever's making the Amityville movies, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. But please, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Knock it off, okay? Go make a Children of the Corn movie, for God's sake. We haven't had one of those in ten minutes. <laughs> Oh, and I, can't, I, can't, I, can't Barney, be- <laughs> I can't believe we're commenting on the relative discretion you. of the exploitation of Stephen King franchises. <laughs> oh, and there is no segue on earth to take us from Amityville Karen into no wave movies, but we're going to try. Yeah, well, I was going to try when you were talking about um, Glorious, and I was like, speaking of unsanitary conditions, <laughs> welcome to New York in 1980. That'll do it. Uh. <laughs> So do you, I mean, we we did a little bit at the top, but do you want to talk any more before I um, take us into yeah, do uh, permanent a tour vacation? of no wave? A tour of no wave. Uh, I give would us love idea. to give you a nice tour of no wave, but I will point out that I watched that documentary two and a half months ago, <laughs> and I have a very short memory. Only for some you things. can do it. You're the only, only one who's seen do it. it. <laughs> give us some uh, idea. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Go and watch Blank City, because Blank City was a fantastic documentary and will give you much more than I can. I've done more research on my movie today than I've done on any other movie, okay. and I've done it over two and a half months, and I literally can't remember half of it, so right. I've got a page of notes. So You could just read this. I could just read Oh, there's a, an entire Wikipedia article, which you... <laughs> We're not down. reading. This is not the show where we read Wikipedia articles. <laughs> it's like articles. 18 pages no, no, of Wikipedia notes. About five of those are the bibliography, by the way. Okay, you guys stop reading Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Jim Jarmusch. Let's talk about Jim Jarmusch. You know, Let's do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not um, reading a Wikipedia article. <laughs> because I, 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 as we go into permanent vacation, I have to say um, I'm a big Jarmusch fan. Like, I don't love all his movies, I, but I've seen all the non-documentaries except for this. 
Uh, and I think the only documentary I haven't seen is the Stooges documentary, just because I haven't got around to it yet. So um, at his worst, I'm, I, there have been a couple films I just find nothing of interest in. At his best, I would say like Dead Man, Down by Law, Ghost Dog, Patterson are all contenders for my top 100 films of all time. Uh, so I've got a lot of time and a lot of interest in what he has to do. And, um, and I'm also really, uh, love his, what I consider a true sort of punk aesthetic. And by punk aesthetic, I don't mean his like hair, which if you're curious, the way he does that is he puts hair product in, puts a hat on and then like, let, just lets it sit for about 10 minutes and then takes it off. And that, that's what gives his like little cough of vertically inflected, uh, hair but the fact that he's still like he's not like okay i guess i'm gonna go make a marvel movie now or i'm even not even like i'm gonna like sign a production deal to with a company he's he's except for um year of the horse and maybe one of his other documentaries he owns all his own films um and that which requires much more complicated funding which is why there's only one every few years but um means that he has control of them. And so he's gradually been re-releasing all of them in Criterion versions. Um, But to give you a sense of how dimly his first film, Permanent Vacation, is viewed, um, it's on Criterion as a bonus feature of Stranger (laughs) Than Paradise. And like, it wasn't even until coming to New Zealand that I saw Permanent Vacation available as a standalone release back in 2004. For some reason, Madman released it on DVD here, but it wasn't even talked about. Uh, in the States, it was like, oh, Stranger Than Paradise, that's his first film. Oh, there was this film school thing, but we we prefer to look past that. And um, contemporaneous reviews are um, range from dismissive to scathing. But before we get into the film, just a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm holding my Jim Jarmusch interviews book here, which I'll go to in a moment because it has a it actually turns out to have an incredibly convenient chronology explaining how we get from point A to point B but um, just some stuff from him from a 1999 Guardian interview uh, before she married my father my mother was a film reviewer for the Akron Beacon Journal now Akron is a small town in Ohio um, and this was a small newspaper um, But when I was a kid, in order to get rid of me on Saturday afternoons, my mother would drop me off at a theater called the State Road Theater that had double and triple features. But usually The Blob, Attack of the Giant Crab Monsters, Creature of the Black Lagoon. So I used to go there a lot. I saw all of those films as a kid, and I really loved it. When I left Ohio when I was 17 and ended up in New York and realized that not all films had the giant crab monsters in them, it really opened up a lot of things for me. I've always loved films, always. I studied literature, and I went to Columbia in New York. And I went to Paris for part of year, one year and ended up staying there. I didn't go to classes there, but ended up at the Cinematheque. And there it opened up even wider because there I saw a variety of films from all over the world. So he comes back having done his um, sort of failed out of his journalism degree that he was doing, um, studying at New York, Columbia. Um, gets his, I mean, I'd say failed out. It's more or less like he passes, but... Is clearly not going on that career in love with film, playing music as well. Um, and then we go through the chronology here from uh, Mississippi's excellent Mississippi Press, incidentally, puts out an excellent series of books called Insert Director Name Here Interviews that are re- very thoughtfully compiled over the chronology of a director's career. And I have a few of them, but 
there's like 20 of them and they're all good. Anyway, so he enrolls in the graduate film study at New York Film School at New York University, where he studies for four years. The fourth year, he doubles as Nicholas Ray's assistant during his time as teacher at the department. Wow. During this period, Jarmusch is also a member of a new, new wave band called the Del Byzantines. Um, quick Wikipedia intermission. I will give a great paragraph from Wikipedia here. Two paragraphs. In his final year at New York University, Jarmusch worked as an assistant to Nicholas Ray. In an anecdote, Jarmusch recounted the formative experience of showing his mentor his first script. Ray disapproved of its lack of action, to which Jarmusch responded after meditating on the critique by reworking the script to be even less eventful. On Jarmusch's return with a revised script, Ray reacted favorably to his students' dissent, citing approvingly the young student's obstinate independence. Ray died in 1979 after a long fight with cancer. A few days afterwards, having been encouraged by Ray and New York underground filmmaker Amos Poe, who we'll probably hear more about during this, and using scholarship funds given by the Louis B. Meyer Foundation to pay for his school tuition, Jarmusch started work on a film for his final project. The university was unimpressed with Jarmusch's use of his funding, as well as the project himself, and refused to award him a degree. Um, so yeah, the grant was intended to pay his tuition. Um, it did win a prize at the Mannheim Film Festival in Germany and get some recognition in Europe. Jarmusch elucidates, um, the film school did not like the film, um, but later they started using my names in ads for the school. And I said in an interview, that's odd because they didn't like my film and they didn't give me a degree. And they sent me a degree. And with that degree and $1.50, you can buy a coffee in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, this was 1980, um, because it requires much more than a degree and $1.50 now. Um, The star, if you can even use that phrase in the terms of permanent vacation, is Chris Parker. Uh, And the film is inspired by, in Jarmusch's words, by how Chris actually lives his life. About half the things that occur in the film happened to him, and the other half I made up. Sometimes we couldn't find him. Once for two days, and we only had 14 days of shooting. Um, So, yeah, most of the uh, critical writing of the time is is really just dismissive or just kind of noting it as a footnote for kind of the completists. Um, There's a more recent appreciation that I I enjoyed from a guy named Michael... I'm just going to go with Wajtus. I don't really know him. So if I'm a publication called The Quietus that... um, and uh, Chris's character is named Alionesis, or Ali is... Aloysius. but it's generally called Ali in the film. Yeah. Um, Jaramouche conveys Ali's waking dream mindset through languid real-time pacing. Just as in the cinema of a Melville, Ozu, or Wenders, it's this gradualness that becomes the film's most significant characteristic. Ali is often seen walking the full length of static frames. He asks a barely there theater cashier whether or not he should buy a ticket for ticket for Nicholas Ray's The Savage Innocence, and she replies by describing multiple scenes from the movie at length. When he picks up a copy of De Lotremont's proto-surrealist book Les Chances de Maldoror, we watch as he reads full pages of it aloud. And in Permanent Vacation's most memorable vignette, the nearly comatose Alley briefly springs to life to perform a show-stopping dance that lasts just about the entire length of a spaced-out solo from alto sax legend Earl Bostick. As our protagonist, propelled by an obscure desire he simply calls The Drift, moves through these episodes, his journey begins to feel like a parallel to Jarmusch's own endless pursuit of coolness. Like Pennebaker's classic Dylan documentary Don't Look Back, it's the kind of film you can return to year after year because of its ability to conjure a very specific time and place. 
Sure, there's blank generations in those slices of narco-NYC verite from the likes of Warhol, Morrissey, and Amos Poe, but those off-handed trashy visions don't really allow us to luxuriate in crumbling settings around the way. Vacation's deliberate pace does. Jarmusch's eye for elegantly desolate compositions was already masterful at this point, and there's just no better way to absorb the rubble of vintage junkies paradise New York than via one of the director's signature lateral tracking shots. Perhaps no filmmaker has been more routinely compared to musicians, and here he's operating on an elevated lyrical wavelength closer to that of television than Lou Reed or New York Dolls. If it had been more widely screened in its day, you could imagine art punks everywhere copying Alley's style and Jarmusch's taste while attempting to translate their own shitty surroundings into poetry. Um, I've said enough. <laughs> and I haven't actually said what I thought of the film. But I'm I gonna think take we a... should start with you. <laughs> I didn't hate it. Um, and let me say a, a couple reasons. Uh, I really had been kind of dreading watching it in that sort of completest way in the same way that I put off watching Fear and Desire by Kubrick forever. Um, I And Fear and Desire is just a weird, not very good film. This feels like kind of like I'm immediately like getting a sense that isn't all the Jarmusch films from Only Lovers Left Alive to Patterson to, um, and that stretches all the way back here of, I am using film as a repository to signify stuff that I find culturally interesting and useful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I found that really interesting. And I do just find, and I I think what makes this watchable, whereas a film set in one room, not so much, is that I do love the New York setting so much, and he makes so much of it. And that's uh, something that's, uh, that that emptiness of it, because there, there's this great there's there's like a couple shots right at the beginning that are the, sort of the busy, you know, hectic mm. New York that, and then suddenly that disappears and you're taken in to this whole wasteland and this really strange time where you could live for no money in New York and as long as you didn't mind potentially having, you know, your house broken into and you know being routinely threatened or beat up or whatever. It was just like. You know, city block after city block of abandoned, empty. Uh, I, I'm not not trying to say landscape, almost like a um, what's the thing that people paint on? It's just something that you can canvas. Canvas. It's a blank canvas for you to project mm. your world onto, and that's something that you see in all three of these films. But um, I guess as anti-dramatic as this is, and uh, you know, I mean, there's no pretending it's anything but anti-dramatic mm-hmm. um it creates I, I i found it sort of meditational and creating a space um yeah and i really yeah and i i i i, I can't make any great claims for it and mm-hmm. i i wouldn't and i i don't think it would make my jarmusch top 10 but it actually wouldn't hit the bottom and i thought i like it better than the dead don't die for instance um so yeah um, well, one thing that struck me, and, and as you were, uh, uh, occurred to me as you were, you were talking there, um, the opening scene, I, I found really quite striking because you've got s- slow, slow motion people, but the soundtrack is them walking normally. Yeah, and uh, that's I found, uh, yeah, very compelling. It was a really nice choice especially because they were all slow motion 
but Ali wasn't. Yeah. Mm. It's, um, which is how he, which as you watch the story, is how he drifts through the whole fucking thing. Yeah. 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 And, and the Sonics are, uh, one, just one other comment on the sound is that um, despite the setting and despite um, the number of musicians that are in this scene, the music is actually almost all um, Javanese uh, gamelan music. Uh, it's from Indonesia, uh-huh. and that and so that metallic percussion that's playing right. through lots of it, and um, and he specifically cho- chose um, Javanese because it was slower than Balinese, and um, and so it is that kind of um, there is a displacement in so many of these choices of like mm. of not quite fitting and things going at a pace that's counter the mm. thing. Anyway, yeah, no, so, I mean that that yeah, makes so a lot of sense. So getting back to taking its own time. Well, yeah. that, it makes a lot of sense, and I, it, it's not a favorite by any. <laughs> but the thing is that I, I do like his work, and I could see that rather yeah. than it being just stick a camera here and someone walks through to there, there were deliberate choices every step of the way. It felt like it was. It did feel like a first film. No, oh, definitely. Yeah. And, um, but I think it feels like a first film with somebody who has a second film. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which okay. I don't always that's, feel when you watch a first. No, film. that's that's fair. Yeah. Um, it's Ellie was someone a character who was too cool to have a personality. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. In in my view, um, yeah, I found it quite. Grating in places, but the the he's definitely is, not likable. There's no oh, question no, of that, no, no. <laughs> and, and not even, and not even, even an unlikable, and not even in a roguish yeah. kind of just, way. Just, even his dancing was selfish. It's and it's that's a great moment. Yeah. Um, but it's, that was the moment I knew I was in trouble. I've got to say because I like that opening sequence. Yeah, drifting through New York, the interiors, the empty interiors, um, mm. such a huge, busy city. And then he started talking in that monotone, and then he did that dance for three and a half minutes, and I went, this movie's only 75 minutes long, but I think it's going to feel quite quite a lot longer for me. And yes, it, it really did. And I think at the end, I was saying, could you could you just fade out now, please? Yeah. Could you fade out as we watched New York fade into the background for, for good, what, four or five minutes off the back yeah. of the boat? And I thought, we're going to be in Jersey by the time he gets around to fading out. That actually, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that that's a tribute to a Sean Tal Ackerman film from a few years prior that's uh, it, the it's a one shot film that's off the back of the Staten Island ferry right uh, and it's entirely narrated um, and there's uh, there's another uh, Chantal Ackerman film called a Hotel Monterey uh, actually there are a couple news from home there all of those are set in New York around that time and they tend to use empty spaces and empty streets and um, and I definitely see a lot of that influence here but without kind of the precision that she has and and yeah. the sense of emotional effect that yeah. she has it was interesting um, that basically the whole film was was full of non-actors when the actor turned up i found him completely magnetic frankie Faison. <laughs> yes it was great that's the yeah. youngest i've ever seen him and he, it's his third role Oh, and he's done about, yeah. a, I looked it up, 142 he's, oh, credited roles now. you throw a stone, you've, yeah. you hit a film that yeah. he's been in. Yeah. And he's always, he's one of those really solid performers. And the film absolutely came alive for me in his, in his monologue. 
I yeah. was with him from the moment he started talking to the moment he stopped. Mm. And then I wasn't with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, because then you missed something. Because they, they had the audacity to have an actor in it. Mm. And it's, uh, for me, the, 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 the film itself... I, I, it was much more interesting to hear Doug talk about it than it was for me to watch it. Because <laughs> for my mind, if you'd cut out the leading actor and just show me, even if there was no dialogue, 75 minutes of those exteriors of New York City in 1981 mm. looking like a bombed-out city after a nuclear war would have been fascinating. I would have watched that. But as you say, grating... He was because mm. he's, he's not as you say he's not a bad guy he's not mean to anybody he's but the monotone, of a drifter the too, monotone that he yeah. speaks in and it's mm. after about five minutes I'm just like yeah I don't think I would want to be in a room but also guy, even that at a monotone yeah. comes across as not caring no, about he, anything yeah there's a um, quote from this that I was um, thinking of including in that already too long thing I said at the <laughs> beginning um, with Jarmusch talking about uh, Ali. His character is not active, he is passive. Even his plans to go away are an expression of that. The car he steals comes to spoilers, <laughs> so to speak, comes to him almost like a gift. He had no plans whatsoever to do that. Yeah. It's important that he is passive rather than active because I wanted people to observe him in his situation. The audience should not be up against what he is up against. I wanted that distance to always be there. He has simply rejected certain aspects of daily life. Um Anyway, John Lurie has such a, a quirky energy to him that, again, yeah. it was another, not an actor, um, he, and he certainly does get better as, his, as he um, does more films. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, that would have he, been he got asked back for Stranger Than Paradise yes. down by law, and Chris Parker didn't. Absolutely. Um, Chris yeah. Parker made a few other films of absolutely no note in Europe. Um, but he has that... I mean, he has uh, he appears for about two seconds in the beginning of the movie, walking mm. across the road, and then he turns up as the saxophonist. Mm. Um, and he and and again, he just there's a little bit of a spark of life that is yeah. so not there in most. <laughs> of the this is a strange comparison, but um, uh, I was watching when at Pink Flamingos. Um, you know, most of it's You're right. drama That's scene. a strange comparison. <laughs> drama scenes, but there's suddenly this scene where they like just plop Divine in downtown Baltimore and just have Divine walking along and shooting out the car just to see people reacting to Divine. Oh, Whereas almost wow. everything else is shot in these very kind of not they weren't really sets; they were people's yeah. houses and stuff. But you know, um, and so and in John Waters' terms, it's like it's when the film becomes documentary <laughs> suddenly and I feel like there's I think with first time filmmakers there's uh, that are with of limited resources and limited mm. experience there are these things where it's like you feel like you have to control everything and then yet like sometimes life slips in in the margins and it may be not what you intended but at the same time it, you don't have the control to do mm. that but it's those moments of life often that people respond to says the guy who made a way too locked down first feature uh, <laughs> but i i think if if i was recommending it i'd be i would say that if you if you enjoy his films then that is yeah. it's certainly worth looking at that that uh, keep your expectations yeah. Yeah. perhaps a little bit on the low side 
Well, it's always worth looking at a director's early works to see how they develop. And well, I, did, definitely, we did that with Jonathan always, Demme. Always, but, yeah. Yeah, 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 with yeah. but I mean, yeah. No, I mean, not with every director. I mean, some directors' first films, yeah. <laughs> like Piranha 2, for instance. Um, oh, James Cameron. Hey, yeah. No, let's not knock <laughs> Piranha 2 here. I won't... Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh wow the divide is here oh, Piranha, Piranha versus Piranha. 2 yeah. uh, Piranha oh, no, is a great film oh, yeah. you know, but did they introduce flying fish? I don't think so <laughs> should they have oh, introduced so, flying so fish? That's it. it's flying guillotine, flying <laughs> fish oh, there yes. we go, we found the wheelhouse yeah. this is why I'm so flying high <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so it was uh, definitely. I'm glad we were talking about this one first because I I watched this last night as well. And oh right, okay. Very, we kept it right to the end and didn't know anything about it. Watched it and then literally watched the one armed executioner because Dawn said to me, "You need something with ninjas just to liven this night up." So I threw on the one armed executioner <laughs> and had a really Doesn't good time. Doesn't it feel great to be known by your wife? <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine the double feature I had? I, I watched <laughs> the, the horror of seventy-three thousand feet <laughs> along with that yeah definitely yeah. if you if you are going to watch it you can do a double feature with something else that's a little more kinetic <laughs> like i don't know crank too high voltage yeah <laughs> yeah so here's the question hmm. do you think downtown 81 is an improvement and before we discuss hmm. that perhaps you should um set up a little bit about more what downtown 81 let's actually talk about is. downtown 81 oh, nice. <laughs> got that one so what you keep me around for nice so <laughs> that and the charming american episode <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. So, Downtown 81. So, this is uh, was my film that I was uh, uh, tasked with watching. And the new... Well, I tasked myself, basically, because to me it looked like one of the more interesting ones, just from the, the trailer I'd seen. remember, you came seen. up with this whole concept. I know, I did come up with this whole concept. And I'm going to lay this out on the table right off the bat. I fucking loved Downtown 81. It is a movie very much like the one we just watched, where really nothing happens. But in this They're case... very similar movies. It's a similar movie. But yeah. in this case, for me, what happens... Is nothing happens in an interesting fashion. To the, uh, mm. Its best skit is. It's much more interesting. So I'll give you a little. It's a compelling screen presence. Yeah. It's, so basically, this movie. Uh, I, well, I'll get. I'll get my notes actually. Rather than just riffing off the top of my head, I did actually write some notes about this, and I wrote them about a month and a half ago. So, good luck reading them in my own terrible handwriting. Uh, Downtown 81, directed by, and here's where I stuff myself up because all the names in this are really tricky. Ido Bertoglio, I believe. Yeah. Uh, filmed in New York City in uh, 1980 through 1981, but yes. not finished because of yes. the classic reason that a no-wave movie would not Money. be finished. Money. They ran yeah. out of cash. So it wasn't finished dollar, until... Dollar bill, <laughs> wasn't finished until 1999, uh, early 2000, uh, by Glenn O'Brien, who I believe was a producer on the film. And uh, also, he, along with uh, Maripol, who is a artist and fashion designer, from New York City, uh, so that really, me, I quite like the fact that art and fashion come back into it, you know, yeah. twenty years later to finish off the film. O'Brien described it as an exaggerated, uh, an exaggerated version of life was his uh, his phrase, casting the then unknown artist, artist and musician uh, Jean. I knew I was going to stuff this up, and I've been practicing it for Michel. days. Jean Michel Basquiat. Basquiat at. Basket, you basket, basket. Oh, it's the T, basket, basket. So I'm going to say it in about eight different variations as I talk I mean, about I, this. I mean, I saw the, the, the film all about him uh, back in the film festival to be able to pronounce his yeah. name. And oddly enough, so when I the got The drama or the darker? The drama. Oh, okay. 
And oddly enough, there is a documentary as well. So Andy Warhol. Yeah, the documentary is Jeff apparently Lewis out on terrible. Google Play and Apple okay. uh, at the moment, Apple TV at oh, the moment. Yeah. I haven't seen it because I don't, haven't seen any of these, but oddly enough, I got quite fascinated with them, and I've watched yeah. about four little mini-documentaries, including one that was simply a five-minute uh, little promo from Sotheby's when they auctioned one of his uh, pictures in 2017. Right. At the time he was, they put him in this, he was homeless. He was just beginning to become an artist. At the end of the production, Debbie Harry, who's in the film, liked his, movie, his art so much, he bought one for $200. In 2017, Untitled 2, which was the one they were promoing on this YouTube video I found, sold at auction for $110.5 million US dollars. He's the It's the highest amount paid for a contemporary American artist. And the thing is, if you want to go see him in a museum, in any of his art in a museum in New York City, good fucking luck, because they offered it to them in the 80s for nothing, and they didn't get the idea of his art, they didn't know who he was, and they turned him down, and now none of them can afford him. So <laughs> they reckon most of his artwork is now in the hands of private collectors. Right. And he's if there is a great little half-hour documentary I've found, which only came out about, about 10 days ago on YouTube, I just looked it up, and right there it was all about looking from the art point of view, which I'm completely... I'm not the person to be talking about fine art and contemporary art, because... You know, I'm the I'm the I'm the explosions and boobs guy, right. but it's actually a fascinating little documentary showing just the what he was talking. About. He was basically using art as jazz, just right. the free expression of ideas. He was a and you get some of that in the film because you oh, yeah. see him in at work in the film, work, which is yeah. a really interesting. Um, yeah, unexpected thing. Sorry, Go and on. apparently he was also mentioned in a documentary on Netflix recently on the Andy Warhol Diaries. Uh, oh, talked right, about yeah. a lot about it because Andy Warhol's was maybe not so much a mentor but a contemporary and mm. so and there was even I mean you know the, the little documentary I talked about talked about being good friends and the, the Netflix documentary implies they were more than good friends Yeah, but that's only what Netflix was saying there that's not I haven't found any evidence of that either way although apparently he was um, he was quite happy to hook up with gentlemen and ladies and I'm pretty sure Andy Warhol, Warhol or Basquiat uh, both. both I believe hey. so but definitely Basquiat um, he so Let's get back to my little notes here. I don't know if I can try to read. I'm just going to have to bring up some lights because of recording this at night and I've had half a whiskey and now I can't read my own freaking notes. There we go. So. Special effects. <laughs> <laughs> not, not so good for a podcast, but I am now reading my notes. So when uh, this was abandoned in the 80s, O'Brien then bought the rights. He re-released it in Cannes in 2000, or released it for the first time in Cannes in 2000. Um John michel Basquiat had died by that stage. He uh, had a drug overdose in 1988, unfortunately. He developed a, a heroin addiction. And by the time he was he died, he was apparently gone from homeless to being worth at least $10 million. Mm. Uh, but the movie soundtrack was the only thing that actually survived originally along with the, with the print. So all the uh, music that they recorded is what was originally recorded back in 1980-81. Mm-hmm. They managed to save those, which is great, because for me that is the reason that Downtown 81 for me is a film I would oh, watch yeah. again because the music is So many is good performances phenomenal. in it, eh? Yeah, we've got music by uh, John Lurie once again, John Lurie and the Lounge yeah. Lizards, Kid Creole and the Coconuts in one of the most upbeat sections of the film, which is just, you know, fantastic live performance. The Plastics, uh, James White and the Blacks, Blondie, DNA, uh, Vincent Gallo is in there as a musician as well. So, the plot of it... <clears throat> What is the plot of this movie? <laughs> the plot is basically, and once again... The we'll plot go, is the plot of Permanent Vacation. It is, but it's 
It's a so, movie where, where plot threads actually do develop, but then if you think they're going to be resolved, you're watching the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, basically, the film opening with uh, Jean playing himself, waking up in the hospital with her and checking out with her, and an undisclosed illness, shall we say. Uh, and I'm going to read directly from a, a, a synopsis online here. After checking out, he happens upon an enigmatic woman, Beatrice, who drives around in a convertible. He arrives at his apartment, only discovered that his landlord is evicting him. Later on, he tries to sell his... A common thread in these films as well. (laughs) Indeed. Later, while trying to sell his artwork, he encounters many downtown New York characters, from musicians, bands, to graffiti artists. Fab Five Freddy's in there. That name will be familiar to people who know about uh, graffiti artists in the uh, the 80s. And then, basically, after that, he wanders around and watches music performed, little bits of plot come in, like the band equipment gets stolen. You go, okay, maybe this is where the main plot's going to be. He's going to try and get that back. That's never resolved, and eventually he stumbles onto Blondie in one of the most <laughs> left field appearances in a movie. And I, I won't believe even uh, magic realism is the term that we're looking magic for. Magic realism. Well, I've, I've learned a new term today. Oh, this is um, and Cookie Mueller from was from Pink Flamingos is in this film. By the way, that's uh, the and the, the weirdest currently to my to, uh, movie that I've could put this to, and I think it's a much better film than is the movie Nine Songs. Which was a, oh, a yeah. British one, which was, I never saw that, but which the was basically one, yeah. yeah, recording showing live artists, and in that case, cutting back to a couple having sex over and over again. And one of my co-workers went to see that at the film festival, and I said, "Oh, what was that like?" She said, "Interesting. I've seen porn before, but never with three hundred people in the same room as me." So, <laughs> but this one is kind of the every time you you pop back from watching one of these artists, you get to. Just wander around New York City with John mm. Michelle again, and you get to know a little bit about him, and you get to see him do his art, and you get to hear early hip hop music, and it's it's a fa- it's not about the destination; it is about the journey. Yeah, hmm. and I really fucking loved it, and I was not expecting that. Now, something you alluded to as well with the soundtrack is part of the reason it took completing is because all the um, voice recordings were lost. Were lost, yeah. He so, was, he was um, yeah. Saul Williams, who's a spoken word artist, uh, wound up doing Basquiat's oh, wow. voice yeah. oh, wow. um, based on listening to lots of recordings and all of that. And all the other... Um, every every bit of dialogue is posted in it. I was um, not aware of And that. the only other thing I was going to mention is... Um, when Downtown 81 was eventually released after its completion, it was right around September 11th, I think, and it got completely lost in the shuffle. Right. And so uh, they did another release of it in, like, 2011 or something like that, and and, and now it's finally starting to gain um, the attention that it, mm-hmm. I, I think, really deserves. I was really... Um, yeah, I had really low expectations of it. It had sort of been on um, my radar when it was on the art house circuit, but I wasn't that it. It just sounded like, oh, there's this messy kind of incompleted film, but it's getting released because Basquiat was in it, and I wasn't that curious. And and I've never quite got Basquiat's art, and if I'm being honest, I still don't. Um, but I, that didn't stop me from finding the film really compelling. What about you? Yeah, I, I, it's, I mean... It didn't grab me greatly, but I mean, more so than the other one. <laughs> <laughs> didn't sound like that was too difficult. <laughs> but I, I mean, I was I was charmed by by Basquiat. I have to say, I, I think he it's he was a very interesting guide through, and and he kind of has a sort of shambolic charm to him I, I didn't know it wasn't his voice but I mean but certainly you just get that 
you're just sort of living his life and going through step by step. It was yeah, it was fun, but it it, it didn't blow me away. I didn't love it. Um, yeah, I kind but, of. I mean, I have no with connection it a bit during to this music it. It either. It's oh not, right, it's not something that appeals to you. Because I'm not that's... a huge music person in general, <laughs> so not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I like what I like. I'm, I'm not less interested in the things I don't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll listen to any type of music, and I mean, some of the music in this one, even that was experimentally atonal, mm. shall we say? And then, <laughs> yes. uh-huh. but then when you'd balance it out, when you suddenly get Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Yeah playing in a, in a rowdy New York club in 1981, which, if I had a time machine and a stab I'm going back to the late 70s, early 80s in New York. Because, I mean, just the... I've It's a weird thing. I've, I've never been to America. I've only ever been to Australia in my entire life. I've never got further afield. And there's parts of America which I would love to see and parts which I would avoid, like the plague. But New York has always been somewhere I've had an affinity to. Yeah. And it's through the movies. It is through yes. the movies. Because so many of these movies, some depiction of the 70s and 80s, and I know that's gone. You, you're not yeah. going to walk down 42nd Street stepping on crack pipes and getting, you know, mugged as you go into a grungy theatre to watch a triple bill of Sonny Chiba movies. Oh, from what but, I've been hearing about post-COVID, you just might actually. <laughs> <laughs> Without the Sonny Chiba movies. Yeah. But, uh, but and, and I know that, but it's, it's, it's one of those cities which it just has this feeling that I would love going from one end of that city mm. to the other. <laughs> yeah, I've been fortunate enough to spend a couple... Uh, visits there where I've had kind of a few days to just wander to museums or wander wherever things take me really in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens and um, but mostly Manhattan and um, it is just such a cinephilic experience of like you're walking around and be like oh that's the library from Ghostbusters oh this is uh, you know this is this is the same place in Central Park where they're jogging at the start of birth where you know um, the character dies or whatever Uh you're just having all of these Evocations. Oh, this is this seemed was this the street that After Hours was shot on? Who knows? But it it could be, you know. It is, yeah. and it's just this endless loop of those um, moments. That's it is a real pleasure to visit. And conversely, um, as, as you suggest, there's so much of that era that's gone now. I remember we talked about Report to the Commissioner, <laughs> that being another mm-hmm. film that really, uh, you know, or t- and that was another film that I considered, or. Um, uh, I think the opening of Manhattan, that opening, you know, say what you will about the sexual politics of Manhattan, and they are not great um, <laughs> in, in comic understatement. But that opening, um, Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue, mm-hmm. um, black and white hymn to uh, New, New York and the late 70s is just such... Uh, an encapsulation, I think, of what cinephiles love, and then, but then it's also the flip side of this completely catastrophic derangement that you're seeing in these movies and movies like Basket Case as well. You know, uh, you, I mean, you, you get the movies from the seven, like late seventies, early eighties, and you look at New York, and you can almost smell it coming through the screen because <laughs> it was in such a state of decay. Mm. I mean, one of my favorite stories is I think it was the director of um, twenty nineteen, The Bronx Warriors. An Italian yeah. producer, probably producer, not director, but he got off at the wrong stop on a New York subway and got out at the Bronx and then just walked through some of the most dangerous cities in New York going, I could shoot a post-apocalyptic movie here yeah. because I don't have to change a thing because it already looks like it's been nuked out twice. 
And, well, well, hence Detroit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, from those 70s movies especially, I think I've seen more of the rooftops of New York City than any other place because every movie has to have that chase across the top of, uh-huh. of New York City streets. Yeah. And well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, as I say, I came into this, you know, knowing that Doug was going to love these movies we're going to talk about and talking about them in different ways. I was expecting there was going to be a movie that I was going to not like. I was not expecting to like this one as much as I did. Well, that's strange. Yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, that brings us to uh, Smithereens. Smithereens. Well, this is one that um, I know that we'd all seen before, so this was yeah. uh, certainly a, uh, a second watch for me. Same, yeah. Yep. And uh, directed by Susan Seidelman. So um, th- now... Uh, listener, you get to hear me read from Wikipedia. <laughs> what we live for. <laughs> Susan Seidelman is an American film director, producer, and writer. She first came to notice. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> with Smithereens. What a coincidence. 1982, the earliest American independent feature to be screened in competition at the Cannes Film Festival. Ooh, I hear you say. <laughs> Her next feature, and this is the one where she became possibly more known, uh, certainly popularly, uh, would be Desperately Seeking Susan, 1985, co-starring Madonna in her first film, and then She-Devil, 1989, starring Meryl Streep in her first starring comedic role, and Roseanne Barr in her first feature film role. Her subsequent films mix comedy with drama, blending genres, pop cultures, references, focus on women protagonists, particularly outsiders. So she was in film school in New York. Yes, um, after taking film appreciation class where she was inspired by, thank you, Doug, (laughs) the French New Wave, particularly the films of Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut, as well as Ingmar Bergman, she switched her focus to filmmaking. Her first foray into movie making at New York University resulted in the Student Academy Award nomination for her satirical short film about a housewife's affair, and you act like one too. And then early 1980s, which brings us kind of where we need to be, Seidelman made her feature film debut with, bated breath, Smithereens, a bleak and darkly humorous look at New York's downtown bohemian scene of the 1980s. It was shot on 16mm for $40,000, on location at times guerrilla style on the streets and in the subways of New York. Smithereens captured the look of the post-punk music scene, which is why we're talking about it, and was the first American independent film to be selected for competition at the Cannes Film Festival. With recognition from Khan, Seidelman became a member of the first wave of 80s-era independent filmmakers in the American cinema. So that pretty much brings us up to this film called Smithereens. It's about a a person who's not that likeable. <laughs> <laughs> Abrasive is the word. Like has trouble holding down their... Uh, put- there's no fixed abode. I think we have that as a comment. Well, yeah, essentially is... And I, I read a review that described her as parasitic, and that's kind of what she is. We've got a, a girl who is already in New York. There's a, um, a young guy with a van comes to New York. 
he sort of stumbles across this person who he's attracted to, but he soon comes to realise, and certainly so do we, that she is essentially a user. She's trying to make it with no actual skills, which kind of brings the Kardashians to mind. <laughs> but it's that kind of yeah, being famous for not really doing anything it's and not contributing famous, yeah. anything. So she never shows any marketable skills. But she certainly does have the ability to um, to latch on to anyone who walks into her vicinity <laughs> who might be able to give her a bed and breakfast. Most notably and the musician Richard Hell. Who uh, is phenomenally good in this film. And the only the only one who'd acted before. Oh, I was, I was wondering about that because I mean I you know, I've known him of his name from Richard Hell and the Boydoids, but have seen them the first time. Yeah. I'm just kind of like I was expecting well, what we saw in the first film, someone yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who hadn't acted before, but no, he he acquits himself really. Well. I think it's oh, I think it's excellent. the thing we're talking about with like directing and bringing real life in, and I think that's something that Seidelman was very good at in this film was knowing what kind of energy she could bring in from real life people, and actually, I'm pretty sure that Hell was recast because. Oh. Um, uh, and I, unfortunately, like I watched a bunch of the bonus features on the Criterion Blu-ray right before we were going to do our first record, uh-huh. and they were all fresh in my head, and it's all gone now. But um, <laughs> one of the things that happened during this film is um, she got in a... She, they were filming, and she got in an argument as in character and went out on the fire escape and was walking backwards and walked... Uh, oh, shit. Ren walked off the back of the fire escape and oh. fell down and broke her leg, so they had to pause production for a couple months Mother. and during that time uh they decided to recast uh that role with uh, richard hell so and uh, what a great thing that is yeah yeah I mean, sorry about the break he's such a no. live wire in that film you yes. know and, yeah and you could tell just his his joy in um the troublemaking moment for instance at the restaurant where <laughs> uh his his current lady and um, Ren are going at each other. It's like he flees the restaurant and then kind of like pokes his head in the window just to see how things are going as they're wrestling with each other on the floor. <laughs> There's not a lot of people to sort of latch on and like, but it's it has... Comparing all these three films together, I start to realise that they all have that drifting mm. feel. Mm. They all are just sort of... Drifting uh, characters that just sort of move from scene to scene, house to house, van to van, and but this this one has much more of a narrative flow. Yeah, and you have the idea of it really is. It's not about the guy trying to make it. It's about this horrible girl who is basically latching on to whoever she can latch on to and has devastatingly sad consequences as uh, as it goes on i i mean i watching it a second time i i felt so much sadder at the end than the first time i oh, saw it's it. kicking the balls yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean you're not really liking her but you want her to maybe learn some lessons and you don't want her to prostitute no, herself no. that's the ultimately yeah. and that was the one thing she was railing against yeah. throughout the course of the movie yeah that's the one thing she was she had one line in the sand very very narrow line yeah yeah and you couldn't quite see it if the light hit it <laughs> but it was but, but it was that there. was it yeah 
Yeah. And unfortunately, the ending impl- uh, indicates that she um, that line didn't matter anymore if she was able to once again get bed and money and. Yeah. Well, I mean, in New York in the eighties, for every Jean Michel Basquiat, there was probably a million starving artists. You know, there was you know people Absolutely. living tend to a room, you know, all trying to make it in music or art or film. That you and you see these people plucked out of obscurity and made, and there they'll be the people on the street next to you, the people at the bar you're mm. going to. There's this great book called um, "Love Comes to Building on Buildings on Fire," which is sort of a long, a cross sectional history of New York music from like over the late 70s and so it's going from um hip-hop to blondie to philip glass to talking heads you know to the ramones and and uh, to springsteen and and patty smith and um uh, back and forth across all of these different kind of movements that are going on to sonic youth you know Mm -hmm. and it's like that person you're at the bar with one day might be touring europe next week and you're like that person's not that different from me how did they suddenly get Plucked out of this hellhole into like <laughs> that, and so I think that's some of the energy that Smithereens is tapping into. Um, in terms of the energy of the film, I think one thing that is was a big deal for me is the music, which um, the band the Feelies, who are one of an all time favorite band of mine. Uh, the first time I saw it, I didn't even it was just screened to me blind without any indication of what I was watching, but. Um, the music, a lot of that is riff versions of uh, songs that appear on their first record, Crazy Rhythms. And that just jangular, agate, um, jagged, jangular, jagged, <laughs> angular, ja- jagged um, approach that they have, you know, gives you that sense of nervousness, uncomfortability. Uh, my words. My <laughs> I um, think alcohol might be part of that. No, well, I think, well, I think we might slip back to BNE next time. Let's, right? go, let's go. But no, um, I, I, do, I wanted to mention them because, in part, mm. um, the reason that they scored the film is because Jonathan Demi was a friend of Susan Seidelman and um, recommended the Fueys, who he would later use uh, in Something Wild as the uh, house band when they uh, stop in there. And so. Um, a film I've never seen. I must. Oh, wait, you've that. never seen Demi oh, Something Wild. Oh, something wild. Yeah. 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 Well, that's the great thing about film. There's yeah, always another great always thing to see. see. Yeah, that's a five star something to see. That's, oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That, and that, that's actually, that's great Ray, Ray Liotta tribute viewing. So I think I only saw um, it about a year and a half ago. And I, every time I see it pop up on I've, one of the streaming services, it keeps popping up. And I keep thinking to myself, I've got other things to watch, but I actually want to watch that one again. And yeah. I'm probably going to before the end of this year. Because it's a, yeah, it's a good film. Yeah. But back to back to our if it's on a streaming yeah. service, I'll, yeah, I'll I did, uh, and so I think I think the first time I saw Smithereens, I thought it was a five star film. It just blew me away, and then the second time, I felt the seams of it a lot more because there wasn't the element of surprise, and also seeing it in the context of some of these other films, it does some things better, some things worse. I don't think there's, I don't think anyone would struggle with the trivia question if you watch these three films back to back. Which of these directors will wind up doing a romantic comedy with Madonna? <laughs> like, there's definitely, like, it's by far the most approachable of mm. these films. And in a perverse way, I think that means that it almost feels farther away from its goals at points. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like Permanent Vacation is trying to be a mainstream story that misses its mark ever. That is what it is. I mean, even because they only made these three films in the space of about 18 months. Yeah. They have quite similar approaches, mm. but different aesthetics because yeah. it's me going back to music. I mean, you've got minimalism in permanent vacation. Yeah. You've got jazz in downtown 81 and you've got punk 
yeah. and Smithereens. Mm. So it's I and it's, it took me my second viewing. I think to, I, I quite like the first time. I actually think I liked it better the second viewing. That's I'm interesting. Which was interesting. I was way more emotionally invested mm. and more emotionally bereft by the time <laughs> yeah. it ended. I I just it was yeah it was a sucker punch and mm. I knew it was coming but not to the same degree. Mm. I, I was yeah. it was weird. Um, the thing is, you're quite right. When you watch a film a second time, sometimes that removes you from it. You're able to step further away from it, and or, mm. and. But this time, I found I was going deeper in, and that was um, that was quite a surprise. I mean, I I really liked it the first time I saw it, but I, it took something more um, this time round. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll probably come back to it in another couple of years, and I might find myself again, like kind of reverting because it is so much of this concept. I, I am reminded of something else I saw in the special features, which is. Um, you know, we t- you talked about it being this short time, but I mean, a lot happened in New York in the 18 months. And one mm. of the things she said was like that feeling when they were filming was a bit like it was a bit like after the gold rush had ended. And it was like, oh, you know, we've had like all these big bands that, you know, have kind of had their apex and, and either fallen or gone to major labels or whatever. And everybody everybody's kind of swooped up and we're what's left behind you know a bit and so that there is a bit of that energy that i think permeates that film and i think i think it does make it a lot more of a downer in that it's very you know anti-aspirational in a way that i mean the the aspirations in the other two films i think are a lot less clear you know but there isn't there isn't an antagonism of the surroundings, there's just more an observation of the surroundings, whereas here it's a lot more. Even though it's quite ebullient at points, and there, there's a lot of fun moments, it mm-hmm. is also quite oppressive. And hmm. um, doing, you know, for I mean, we haven't really talked about Brad Ridgen's character, the um, young fellow who comes from the Midwest to come experience New York, and he feels more like an like more it. like an observer than anything. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah, he feels like. I mean, it, films have taught us that someone like that who's experiencing something for the first time is the audience point of view mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And one thing, she was more compelling than he was. Yeah. And she's like a walking car crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she's... And, and she but he's had, safer to be with in that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. But, then, but that also, in the same way, that also puts you in, like, you know, the scene with a... Um, prostitute comes into his car and like there's this kind of awkward back and forth between human connection and attempting to use I mean there's so much kind of attempting to sell things or attempt you know I mean certainly with Ren she's always like you want to buy you know this or you know I'm going to sell this painting or whatever you know just this kind of magpie of Mm, how can I get money from this (laughs) yeah Mm. well Oh, all right. Well, let's oh. wrap that well, up. Then. I think one final note I want to bring out, just to wrap these this whole thing full circle, was we started off. This was inspired by the documentary Blank City. Yeah. And we were just talking about Richard Hell. What was the name of Richard Hell and the Voidoids, Voidoids' first album? Blank Generation. There you go. There's the name intro, and that will wrap things Ooh. up with a nice little bow, and we can finish off our whiskeys, and maybe see you next time. Sounds good. Take care. Cheers. Clink. <laughs>